Welcome to the Captain's Table, where we have intimate chats with those who have shaped Star Trek in words. My name's Michael, and with me as always is my wonderful friend and co-host, Roz. Hi, Roz. Hi, Michael. Good to be back as always. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, a wet and soggy November in London, so nothing changes in London, So, um, which is really good. How's it up in Glasgow? Yeah, wet and soggy, but still October here. Oh, yeah, of course it is. Oh, I'm, I'm just, oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm in this stage at work at the moment where I'm setting up Christmas. Um, I'm setting up the Christmas displays. And um, today I was talking about the January sale at work. And I'm already looking to buying Christmas for next year, for 2021. So it's like, I'm all over the place today. So it's a really good October. It's going to be Halloween soon. It's going to be Hall <laughs> Halloween tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I, that's the problem when you work in retail. You're always skipping ahead in time, living in the future. <laughs> oh dear. And I've almost sold out of Halloween. So I I'm a happy bunny because, oh, uh, yeah, nothing to put on sale. So... Roz, here we are. Um, we're back again for another Captain's Table and we have a, a, another special guest with us. Yes, and somebody we have not spoken to in a very long time, but I'm so excited to be able to welcome back to the show, Keith Ari de Canada. Keith, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm in New York City and it's wet and soggy here too. Okay, <laughs> well, it's good to know it's universal. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. and, and it's still October there. So far, yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh, that's good. We're on the same page now. Uh, and the same day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so good to have you with us, as Roz said. So f thanks for coming along. My pleasure. So Keith, how have things been with you? Obviously, it's been uh, quite a few years since we've um, spoken to you. You've been busy in, in that time, presumably. Uh, do you want to give our listeners just a quick catch up on how things have been going with you? I've been continuing to write. Um, in terms of Star Trek stuff, most of what I've been doing has been in the nonfiction realm. I have been writing about Star Trek for Tor.com, which is a pop culture news magazine website -y type thing. Um, I've already done complete rewatches, uh, in-depth rewatches of Star Trek, the original series, The Next Generation of Deep Space Nine. I'm in the midst of a rewatch of Star Trek Voyager uh, right now, which I started uh, this year. Um, this being the 25th anniversary of Voyager, uh, and it seemed a good time to, to look back on it. I have also been reviewing the new episodes of all the new shows on CBS All Access. So each new episode of Discovery, Short Treks, Picard, and Lower Decks, I have been reviewing them as they come out, and I will continue to do that uh, for the foreseeable future. And I've been doing other stuff for Tor.com as well. I did a rewatch of all the live action movies based on superhero comic books, um, of which there have been a few. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Uh, and, I've, and I've written about uh, Stargate, Batman, the 66 Batman, about other the Marvel's, Net, Marvel's Netflix shows and a bunch of other things that I've reviewed for them. Um, in the fiction writing realm, I have been um, continuing a lot of original work. Uh, I have my precinct series of fantasy police procedurals, uh, the most recent of which is Mermaid Precinct. And I'm hoping to have Phoenix Precinct out in 2021. Um, and I've started a new, a new urban fantasy series called The Adventures of Brom Gold which take place in the Bronx, which is where I'm from. Um, it's it's writing writing about my yeah. part of my hometown of New York City that people don't write about very often, uh, which is which is the Bronx. Usually, when people write about New York, it's Manhattan south of 125th Street, and that's about it. Um, <laughs> the outer boroughs in Upper Manhattan don't get very much love, and I'm trying to I'm trying to change that all by myself. So, um, uh, the first book came out in 2019 and was called A Furnace Sealed, 
the second book is called Feet of Clay, which will be out also hopefully in 2021 if all goes well. Um, all doesn't always go well as this year has proven very thoroughly. I was originally hoping to get those two books out this year, but uh, the pandemic kind of uh, messed with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a couple collaborative novels that are out. Uh, one, one is coming out November 1st with David Sherman called To Hell and Regroup. Another is a thriller that I wrote with Dr. Manish K. Batra called Animal, which will be out in January. Um, and I've written a lot of short stories. I've been, um, uh, I wrote an alien novel. I'm still doing, you know, other tie-in stuff. I, like I said, an alien novel. And, and I've written some short stories and some other stuff here and there. Um, and in the, also in the world of Star Trek, I worked on, I've been doing some stuff for Star Trek Adventures, the role-playing game uh, that Modiphius is doing. I, I wrote several portions of the Klingon Empire core rulebook that uh, has already been released electronically and should be out physically soon if it isn't yet. Um, and I'm also currently working on an adventure, a uh, Klingon-focused adventure called Incident at Krav 3, uh, which I just sent off the first draft of which to my editor, which he will send back with lots and lots of, of track changes on it and saying, oh my God, this is terrible. What were you thinking? Um, so that, that's, that's the next step of that. <laughs> and, uh, and I've got a new tie-in project that I can't talk about yet because I signed an NDA, so that's all I can say about that. But, uh, but I'm, working, I'm working on lots of different things. Uh, keeping keeping busy as one does. Um, it's not always easy, um, especially this year. But uh, but it's things things have been going generally okay, um, as okay as possible given you know the current apocalypse. Yeah. Can can I just say well, that? Yeah. It, I, I, you, I, part of your, oh, sorry, Michael. I was just going to say part of your job being to do no, no, um, no. in in depth rewatches of Star Trek is like life goals. <laughs> hey, <laughs> that's I, part I, of work. I'm, I mean, it has its downside. I mean, yes, I get to rewatch things like *The Best of Both Worlds* and, and *In the Pale Moonlight*, and um, but I also have to rewatch, you know, *Threshold* and *Prophet*. Fox Brain and uh, yeah. yeah. Actually, okay, th- this is one of the things that I actually came up with rewatch. Spock's Brain. I mean, it's not good by any means, but. Spock's brain gets a bad rap as the worst episode of Star Trek. There are way worse episodes. Oh no, there are definitely worse episodes. Um, I say it's one of the worst of TOS, but it's not the worst episode. No, it's not even. It's not even the worst of TOS. It's there's there are a few redeeming features of it, and there are. I mean, I'm sorry. And the children shall lead is way worse. Oh yeah, the children shall lead is just Plato's stepchildren is significantly worse. Um, And 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 Spock's brain does have a few redeeming features, including actually one thing that it doesn't get enough credit for. Uh, there's a bit where they're all trying to figure out where Spock's brain has been taken and, and the entire bridge crew is getting together like trying to figure out where it went. And that was such a nice change because usually it's Spock who does all that, sucking all the air out of the room and like peering into his blue hood and explaining <laughs> everything to everybody while the rest of the crew is reduced to pushing their buttons and saying I saw a lot. This actually involved the whole bridge crew in the problem, which was a nice little preview of, of the more ensemble-driven spinoffs, which I thought was nice. So yeah, Spock's, Spock's brain gets a bit. <laughs> Having said that, like I said, it's not like it's a good episode or anything. But... Yeah, it's, it's not up there with like in the film and light or anything, but it's uh, yeah. yeah, there there are worse episodes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I was actually reading your um, review of this week's uh, Discovery episode, so I won't spoil it for any of the listeners. Um, but I really enjoyed the review, and it was definitely spot on. Um, with everything it was really really good actually so because I do keep an eye on those and um, since we last spoke obviously we, we have had um, Discovery, Picard and Lower Decks so what a generic uh, you know in a quick summary what do you think of the three new shows and do you think it's a great step forward for Trek? 
Uh, I think just in general, the current approach that Secret Hideout is taking with the franchise is a good one. Um, I think using using the the streaming channel to produce lots of different types of Star Trek is great. Um, one of the things, one of the reasons why the franchise has endured is that there are so many different aspects to it, um, which which particularly started once Deep Space Nine went on the air and expanded the definition of what Star Trek was. Once you had once that dam broke. Star Trek can be anything in the Star Trek universe, which really opens up story possibilities. So you can do things like, you know, you can do low comedy like Lower Decks. You can do, um, you can do something that's a little less Starfleety like Picard, um, and 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 you can do a straight up Star Starship adventure like like Discovery is, um, and and lots of other things. And and Short Treks also is a wonderful vehicle for for uh, for doing like little vignettes and and, and nifty little stories. Um, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what they do next. I mean, not everything is perfect, obviously. Discovery has taken a while to find its footing, partly because it's been going through showrunners the way most people go through underwear. Um, but hopefully things will settle down. With, you know, they kept the same showrunner for an entire season for the third season, so I'm hoping that will bring some stability, a desperately needed stability to the show. Um, I'm very much looking forward to Strange New Worlds, um, which I would never have believed to be possible before Discovery season two, I would have said, why would you want to do a Pike series? What's the point? But after watching Anson Mount, Rebecca Romine, and Ethan Peck in season two of Discovery, yes, I am all for more of that. Um, I think it's a great approach. The shows themselves are hit and miss like any show. Uh, some are better than others, but, um, and, and you know, they're not perfect, but uh, neither were the others. <laughs> yeah. But when, but they, they're all recognizably <laughs> yeah. Star Trek at the very least. And I think they're doing a good job of continuing continuing the story forward and doing doing nifty things with it so yeah i think sometimes that um the new shows of the the sort of more modern era they get really uh hard they get given a really hard time if they're not perfect like by the end of the the pilot when and when you think about you know um things like even tng which is often held up as like a, a pinnacle of star trekness I actually didn't really get that great until like season three and the for season seasons one and two were very <laughs> and, and, iffy <laughs> so in 1987 there was a huge contingent of star trek fans who were completely disgusted at the idea of the next generation how can you possibly think of doing star trek without kirk spock and mccoy what's wrong yeah um this isn't real star trek <laughs> yeah it's and, and for that matter we got this you know, 20 years ago when enterprise debuted too it's it's and, and 40 years ago when the motion picture came out and everybody's like, those aren't the Klingons. How can you change the Klingons like that? What are those pajamas they're wearing? And that doesn't, the technology's all different. You know, all the exact same things people were saying about Discovery three years ago. Um, and they were saying it in 79 too. They just didn't have the internet to blare it out to everybody on, but they were saying it in the fanzines and saying it at conventions, you know. Um, nothing changes. <laughs> It's, it's become it's become traditional <laughs> that that you have to rail like there has to yeah. be a, a demographic that rail against new Star Trek before it eventually just it becomes it's assimilated into the franchise and then that becomes real Star Trek and then the next thing is what you complain about. <laughs> People who are fine with it is real Star Trek right now. Thank you. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners, we're going to talk about one of Key's books now, and it's The Art of the Impossible, and this is a, a lost era novel. Uh, this was the third novel in the series, and this was published by Pocket Books uh, in 2003. Wow, 17 years ago. Uh, yeah. For the listeners, Keith, could you just give us a, an overview of the story before we jump in and talk about the book, please? Uh, in the fourth season premiere of Deep Space Nine, 
uh, episode, The Way of the Warrior, which was, among other things, the, uh, the episode that brought Worf into the cast of Deep Space Nine, there was a conversation between Garrick and Bashir that mentioned, in passing, the Batrika Nebula incident. Um, all we know about the incident from this conversation, which is the only time the incident was ever mentioned, uh, is that it was between the Klingons and the Cardassians. It was, according to Garrick, ages ago. And peculiarly for an incident, it lasted 18 years. Um, using only that, <laughs> I, uh, I created a storyline about a conflict between the Klingon Empire and the Cardassian Union that took place during the Lost Era, as you said. The Lost Era was uh, a series of novels uh, that took place between Kirk's seeming death in the Nexus at the beginning of Generations and the launch of the Enterprise D in Encounter at Farpoint, which is a period of about 70 years uh, of time that we know some things that happened, but not a lot. Um, and so these, these novels were designed to fill in that gap. In this particular case, the 18 years I chose were the 18 years prior to the Kittimer incident in which Worf's parents were killed, which uh, began around the time that Cardassia annexed Bajor. The idea being that this was during Cardassia's big expansionist phase when they first started coming in contact with some of the other Alpha Quadrant powers. And uh, a conflict develops in near the Batrika Nebula on a planet called Rocknell 5, where that leads to a competition between the Klingons and the Cardassians. The Cardassians find, um, in essence, a, an old Klingon ship, a very old Klingon ship, that the Klingons hold sacred that was one of the first attempts at, at uh, going out into space after the Herc invasion. And the Klingons consider the Chagran remains to be sacrosanct, and they want it for themselves. The Cardassians found the planet first, and they say it's ours. And the problem is there's no treaty between the two of them. There's no means to resolve the dispute. And at this point, they're too distant from each other for a war to really make sense, especially for a Klingon empire that is still recovering from the Praxis disaster at the beginning of Star Trek VI. So Curzon Dax, um, who at this point is a Federation diplomat, uh, negotiates a, an arrangement similar to what uh, was done with Sherman's planet on the original series, Trouble with Tribbles, where both the Klingon Empire and the Cardassian Union are given the chance to develop Rocknell 5. Whoever does the best job of it will then be awarded the planet. Um, over the course of the next 18 years, um, they go back and forth, they try to develop it. Um, there's conflicts between the Klingons and the Cardassians, dogs and cats sleeping together and so on. <laughs> and, and we also <laughs> follow a number of characters throughout this, um, including not just Curzon Dax, but also Ian Troy, the father of Deanna Troy, um, who's involved in the situation. Elias Vaughn, who's a character that was created for the post-finale Deep Space Nine novels uh, as a younger uh, Starfleet intelligence operative. There are appearances by Ambassador Sarek, uh, by Rachel Garrett, who would, uh, go, who would become the captain of the Enterprise C, um, uh, and Auburn Tain, the head of the Cardassian Obsidian Order, Corbin Entek, who is a member of the Obsidian Order that we saw in the DS9 episode Second Skin, uh, a whole bunch of other characters, uh, tons of them, including um, uh, and several chancellors of the Klingon Empire as well. Yeah, there's so many amazing um they're not cameos but there's so many there's the use of so many different characters that we have either seen before in Star Trek or 
heard reference made to before in Star Trek and you tie them all together in this book and one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was often when you read a novel and there's like a, a, a character in it that has been made reference to or that we know would have been around in that time often they, it, it can feel a bit shoehorned in that they're kind of there to use the name whereas in this book there was so many of them but they all fitted so perfectly into the story they were all there for a purpose they all helped drive the plot and they were all believably part of the situation so it was it didn't just feel like name dropping it felt like a really coherent this is where they all were at that point in time and this is how they were all all involved in this one situation and I really enjoyed that because it it broadened the the understanding of where these people came from and what you know what references were made maybe later on in things like Deep Space Nine and I always love that universe building that means that you can then go back with a new perspective on later references in in the shows so I really enjoyed the way that that was done. Thank you that's 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 one of the things that good tie-in fiction can do really well especially because we're not we're not tied into actor availability and in some cases actor you know survivability um I can I can do an older version of Sarek. I can do a younger version of, uh, you know, I'm not blanking on example. Oh, of Kimpek, um, to use one example. I can I can have Worf as a seven year old. I can you know, um, <laughs> I can I can do. It, it, because you're not tied to the actors directly, you can use them in different ways, uh, and show younger or older versions of them, um, and and it's great and it's and it's very. And, and, I, and I, I was going for what you said, Roz. I was trying not to just use people for the sake of using them. I wanted to make sure that they were integral to the plot, that they had a purpose for being there. Um, and and I, didn't, I didn't want it. I mean, Curzon especially. I mean, Curzon, it was established that he had a good relationship with the Klingon Empire and that, and that he understood Klingons. And, and so his, his involvement was, was pretty obvious and, and made sense. Um, the, and, and same thing with an Auburn Tain. You know, he was the head of the Obsidian Order for a long time, so of course you would. Entech was um, self-indulgent on my part, but it could, it could have been any Cardassian agent, but I wanted to use Entech just because I loved that character. And, mm -hmm. and I'm a big fan of the actor who played him, Gregory Sierra. And um, so, you know, that was that was something, I, it was self-indulgent, but I, but it worked. I mean, it, 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 he was an agent, so, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like I like that when um, I was reading anybody that I'd seen on screen, I was getting that actor coming through as I was reading it. And I don't know about anybody else who's maybe read this book, but my only reference point for Curzon really was the episode where Odo inhabits the the like the essence of Curzon. So in all the scenes with Curzon, I was seeing like the Curzon Odo hybrid and, and hearing Rene Obrunshaw in my head. So that was a, that made me chuckle. Um I mean I was I was I was sort of doing him I what I had in mind for him was sort of a mix of uh of the way Obrunshaw did it with a little bit of that and a little bit of Martin Sheen. I'm not sure why Sheen in particular, but there was there was a little it just it it, it that's just what felt right for him. But yeah, no, that that portrayal was really all I had to go on. Um, yeah. So that was uh, um, actually funny, funny story about that. I in the in the acknowledgments for the book, I listed all the actors who um, who yeah. played the roles that I because I, I tried to thank them because they give me a guideline for how to write them in in their performances. And somebody 
at, at the very latter stages of this, so and I missed it, uh, corrected Rene Aubergenois to the actor who played Curzon Dax and Emissary in the flashback there because they thought I got it wrong. Yeah. And it's like, no, that was an extra who was lying <laughs> on a table. He didn't do anything to inform the performance. <laughs> yeah. um, my editor apologized. <laughs> I mean, nothing against the guy. When, when you have, yeah. <laughs> um, when, when you have such an epic story spanning uh, 18 years, how do you go about plotting that? What's, what's the process behind that? Because as we've mentioned, you've connected so many characters and so many dots within that period. How do you go about writing that? Well, you have to outline it. I mean, any media tie-in novel, you have to outline it first anyway, that's required. Um, because the plot has to be approved by, in this case, CBS licensing before uh, before you start writing the no first word of the novel. Um, so yeah, and then and then you know I I tend for some some of my books I tend to plot them out chapter by chapter. I don't do that with all of them. I did with with Art of the Impossible. It was it was you know detailed. What's this happened? This happened? That happened? Where it was? And and just uh, it was very meticulous, making sure I, I covered everything. Um, and uh, so yeah, that was that 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 one was plotted out very carefully, and and it was one of my longer outlines. It's also one of my longer books. I I, I think it's this it's one of the two longest books I've ever written. The other one being Articles of the Federation, and um, so yeah, that um, that was part of it. Was just making sure you know and juggling all those balls in the air. Um, it, it's one of the more complicated plots of anything I've written, just because there and there's so many moving parts. And it's, and it's interesting because there really isn't a protagonist as such. You know, there's no one yeah. character who runs yeah. through the whole thing. You know, Vaughn and Troy almost kind of, but not really. Yeah. Dax kind of, sort of. But, but Dax is also off camera for a large chunk of the book. Um, you know, the, in some ways, the two, the two governors, Kowlin yeah. from the Klingon side and Manor from the Cardassian side, you could argue that they're the protagonists, but, uh, but they also aren't in all of the books. Yeah. I mean, they're certainly the... the uh, the two of them sort of are the running themes throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think the, the journeys those two characters take in particular is one of the more interesting parts of the book. Um, up to, and, and, and I don't actually come out and say this, but it was always my intention. There's, there's the prologue, which has the young Klingon being told a story about the Chagran thing. And then there's the epilogue with um, a Cardassian telling his grandkids a story about getting Racknell 5. And to my mind, I didn't come out and say, but to my mind, the little kid in the opening was Kowlin as a little kid, and the old man telling the story at the end was Menorah as, as a retired old uh, grandfather. But. Ian Troy, you mentioned Ian Troy. Um, what, what made you want to use the character? And it, it was really good to actually see something about, about the character and obviously the links uh, through to Deanna. And um, as I was reading it, I thought, well, I wonder if we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, are we gonna see or read about his death? I should say, and and it was very poignant because you know what's gonna happen with Deanna and everything else. So why why Ian? Uh, it was it was a character that we knew a little bit about, but not a lot, and we knew he died in uh, in while in Starfleet. So he died he died um, on the job, as it were. Um, so I thought it would be it would be a nice. Thing to because you know, we God knows we know enough about her mother, but we know, <laughs> um, and I thought it would be it would be interesting to explore who he was as a character, um, what it was 
And and in particular, I wanted to show you know who who is this person whom Loxana fell in love with and married and had two kids with, um, and uh, and I I figured it would be somebody who would be very even tempered who could who could handle Loxana's you know eccentricities, um, and and I also you know just it, it just like I said it's a character we haven't really we don't know very much about, um, and and I wanted to I wanted to explore him a little more and show how he died. Yeah, I have to admit to having uh, choked up a few times when I was reading this book because um, I had kind of forgotten about Kestra uh, because it's been so many years since I saw the episode and the last time I saw it was before I became a parent. And so when I when it was mentioned, I suddenly find myself getting really upset because I've got my little boy now at, at, at that situation of, of a parent losing a child and then finding myself getting upset again later on when... Um, uh, uh, Eli, I'm blanking on the name. Is it Elias? Vaughn. Vaughn. Sorry, Elias Vaughn is is um thinking how how is he going to tell seven year old Diana that her dad's not coming home? And I just started to cry at that point in the book. I thought, oh God, is so um there's so many pitfalls of uh, of reading um, Star Trek after you become a parent because there's so many <laughs> awful things that happen. I was the same with the episode of Picard where you find out about uh, Troy and Riker's kid. I was a total mess. <laughs> so um so that that got to me that um I I, I like that we got a bit more information about that, even though it was difficult to read as a parent myself. Keith, one of the things I wondered was the the cover art. It was the the cover was General Wolf, um, and he wasn't in the story uh, that long. And I was just it's something just in the back of my mind as I was writing notes, as reading the story. It was like, was that your decision, or is it someone else's decision with the cover? Are you consulted because he wasn't really in the story that much, and was he used just because? people would recognize the character, obviously from the undiscovered country and hopefully that, was, that would make people pick it up. That was a part of it. Um, one of the, and it was also because there was art of him. Um, there, there was photography that, that could be used because uh, the, the, yeah. the, um, the covers were all done uh, with photo manipulation. So they were using actual uh, photographs, um, which, was, which actually turned out to be a challenge when doing the next book, uh, Well of Souls, because Almost all the photography from yesterday's Enterprise was of Tasha Yar. There was almost there was like nothing of Rachel Garrett um, because everybody was like, "Oh, Denise Crosby's back, so we're going to take all our pictures of her." Um, so that proved a bit of a challenge. But but for for this, there weren't that many characters in the book for whom they had accurate art. General Worf was one of them, and and also Michael Dorn's face is recognizable. Um, and and so that and and he's you know even though it's not the Worf who is. That we know of, it is his grandfather, which was which was always the intention of the of the screenwriters of Star Trek Six, even though it was never it was never stated on screen. But that was always uh, intended that was that he was to be Worf's uh, grandfather, uh, and I worked that in, you know, obviously. But um, and I also had fun writing. That was another character I wanted to develop more because we only got a little bit of him in Star Trek Six, and I thought it would be fun to do somebody who was you know who had Michael Dorn's face and voice, but wasn't Worf and, and was a different type of character, um, and. Uh, um, but yeah, no, he wasn't in it very much, but, uh, but his, his, between the recognizable face and the available art, it was, that, that, that had a lot to do with it. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, we had to pick somebody. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, 
the the style of the of the covers were set up it was the same for all of the cover all six books in that series that came out in 2003 all had the same basic you know one big image and one small image um and so we had to you know we had to have something and uh and and Worf was as good a choice as any and he's still an important character in the novel um, oh yeah of course yeah. So, uh, yeah. supporting only you know he, he does he does die part way through but sorry spoilers so I think it's um it's fair to say that as as um as much sort of action and back and forth as there is in this book, it is quite a political story. There's a lot of um th there's a lot of in-depth uh development of the the internal workings of the the Cardassian Union, the internal workings of the Klingon Empire at that time, um, the diplomatic relations that are kind of and machinations that are going on with the Federation. There's stuff about the the Romulans. It's it's all very involved. What was it like trying to write that, make it all link up, but also you know have it all be? It, it was all very believable. It, it, there was nothing that came across as far fetched or oh I, that that's just been put in there because plot. It was all very. This is how politics works and um, regardless of race you know politics is politics everywhere in the in the universe so how was it to write that kind of po uh, politically driven story well i love i love writing politically driven stories it's, it's one of my favorite things um uh, that's that i mentioned articles of the federation which is another novel i wrote two years after this uh which was a year in the life of the federation president um for that matter singular destiny also involved a great deal of, of politics as well that that's that's fun for me. <laughs> you know, uh, that's I enjoy that. I enjoy writing about the the politics, uh, whether it's of a workplace or of a star-spanning empire or of an office space or you know whatever. Um, there's there's always politics involved to some extent or other uh, with any large group, and um, and that's that's fun to write. That's fun to write about. And it's something I've been a student of since I was a kid. Um, you know, the, 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 the entire process fascinates the hell out of me. Um, and, and the machinations and the, the backing and forth and the, the people trying to, you know, gain position or, or figure out ways to better their own position and uh, the deals that have to be made and, and all of that. And, and especially doing that in a Star Trek context is, is a bit of a challenge because it's supposed to be, I mean, less of a factor here because I wasn't really writing about the Federation much, um, uh, but it's still, you know the and, and and the cultural differences that that crop up. It was it was especially interesting to me to to write about the Klingons and the Cardassians because, um, the, for a while the 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 book on the Klingon Empire was the Final Reflection by John M. Ford, uh, which was written in 1983 when there really wasn't that much known about the Klingons except for, you know the the brief appearance in the motion picture, uh, and 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 the five appearances on the original series, but we didn't really know that much about the Klingons. Uh, and he developed this entire empire that doesn't isn't quite compatible with what came later, but it's actually very similar to how they developed the Cardassians. He created a Klingon empire where there was the 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 empire was ruled jointly by the military and by the secret the, you know the intelligence organization, the Imperial Intelligence, um, and and where service to the state was paramount overall. The whole warrior ethos thing was developed more aggressively on Next Generation and, and sort of, it became more of a, a military dictatorship and, a, and a almost feudal society that, that, that we got. Um, 
but the Cardassians actually are very similar to John Ford's Klingons. Um, and, and it was fun to play with the differences between, you know, a culture that values warriors above all versus one that um, values service to the state above all. Um, and, and the differences that makes. The Cardassians, especially in that period, were not ones who really gave a damn about relics or their past or, you know, we saw, particularly in Chain of Command when, when Picard was talking to Madrid um, about their, their expansion where they basically sold off their heritage in order to, to expand the empire. And the Klingons value that stuff like crazy. They're, the Klingons, that, that's another difference. You know, the Klingons are way more spiritual. Um, it's a very violent spirituality, but still very spiritual people. Whereas the, you know, the Cardassians are much more practical. Um, and, and that conflict was part of what drove a lot of what happened in the Air of the Impossible as well. My two favorite chapters in that book to write, and, and they're ones that I like to read a lot when I do, sometimes I'll do readings at conventions and, and I've done these two chapters a lot, is the, ch the, the chapter that is the Klingon restaurant that's on Cardassia. And then the Klingon mountain climber who is climbing a mountain on, in a, on a Klingon planet. And that, you know, how, how, because one of the things that interests me about politics in general is, and, and also about just major events, I'm less interested in big major events than I am how those big major events affect people. You know, what people are making these grand decisions and important things. How does that affect a person who just wants to run his restaurant? How does that affect a retired guy who just wants to climb mountains all over the galaxy? How does that, you know, that, that is, that is really of interest to me. Um, I think I think it's why, you know, I liked in the, in the Star Wars films I liked uh, the Last Jedi and Rogue One so much, because those those movies actually dealt with like the ground level consequences and and the Clone Wars too for that matter the TV show, uh, and Rebels, uh, you really got into how this affects people, not just mm -hmm. how it affects the grand political. I mean the grand political stuff is interesting too, but you're still talking about people and what what effect it has on ordinary folks. Um, and, I, and I tried, I always try to, you know, not lose sight of that. Yeah, it's funny that you, um, you mentioned that particular chapter because that was down in my notes as one of my favorite moments from the book was because I think those two incidents where you, you see it from, as you say, that the you know, individual person on the street perspective did more to illustrate the breakdown and the political fallouts of the situation than you could have portrayed with you know four more chapters of political discussions in an office it was so it was so amazing and especially the moment when the the I love the moment where the the Klingon uh, restaurateur is lying on the floor he's just about to die and he hears that the guard was lying that it wasn't his one of his customers who was a gull or a leg or something that turned him in and he's comforted by the fact that his his patrons were loyal <laughs> as he dies and that makes him feel better as he's as he's dying and i just thought that was so well written and then per, the poor Cardassian mountain climber who's just a retired old man who wants to climb his mountain and suddenly he's being dragged off by burly klingons and them um, to 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 whatever end that was sort of left, left open-ended and I thought it was just it was so highlighted so perfectly the state of affairs at that time in the in the novel so I really enjoyed that. Thank you. I have to jump in and say that um, go first of all Articles of the Federation is one of my favorite books I, I absolutely 
adore that book. And um, at the moment, I've only got it on the ebook, but I definitely need to get a hard copy of that uh, paperback version. Like but it's, but, uh, yeah, it, yeah. Uh, I, I remember um, there was another book, um, Andrew Robinson's Garrick book. I, I, I had to go and find it in Germany in the end um when i was at a convention but no first of all articles federation fantastic so thank you for that and again you can really show the political side of things because in both stories you can tell you enjoy writing that so i thought that was brilliant so you can see that and, and thank you for that um the romulan part i'm a big fan of the romulans and um do you wish you could have expanded upon that and were there any other areas of the book you wish you could have expanded upon, but you just couldn't get it in or didn't, you know, the page length, you were just running out of words, so to speak? No, I, the, the Romulans, I didn't want, the, the Romulans were in it mainly because I wanted to provide context for the Kitamur attack. Um, and I wanted, you know, basically the, both the Narendra 3 and the Kitamur attack came at a time when theoretically the Romulans were, were being all isolationist and then to close their borders um and and i wanted to tie it all in together uh and i also thought you know concern about a romulan attack would make a good uh glass of ice water in the face to the to the empire to the klingons to the, that this had gone on too long and they were ignoring other more important things in the pursuit of this particular uh thing uh, I no, I didn't. The Romulans' purpose in this was to be a an, an, a background irritant. <laughs> um, uh, I didn't I didn't want to get them too deeply involved in it. It's mainly about the Klingon Cardassian conflict, and the, the Romulans are just sort of sitting back and moving some chess pieces around, and um, or maybe more accurately saying they're pulling the flies off a few wings to see what uh, wings off a few flies, excuse me, to see what would happen. <laughs> um, and. Uh, so yeah, I no, I didn't. I they, they weren't exactly enough. I, I and again, I was using some uh, uh, established characters there, um, including uh, uh, Koval. Um, and uh, so yeah, that was um, that was the the that was all. I, I I didn't I didn't need to include them any more than necessary. Yeah. I was just had one of them to come in and just sort of mess around with. Them. And, and were there any characters that you wanted to put in and you just couldn't get them in because it would have felt like shoehorning, like you were mentioned earlier? I don't think so. And keep in mind, I wrote this book 17 years ago. So um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't, I, I think I would have, I wanted to have a bigger role for Uhura in it. She was really only in one scene, but I just, there wasn't any more to, uh, that one scene she had with Vaughn was enough. Um, no, no, I don't, I can't think of anybody I particularly wanted there were a couple of like i mentioned Entech was a bit of a self-indulgent choice so was kang i i it didn't need to be kang who was there when when uh Kimpek challenged kravok uh it didn't have to be on his ship but i love kang 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 is the reason why i love klingon so much was because i saw day of the dove as a very young child and thought oh my god this guy's awesome and so i i couldn't resist putting him in there uh, and I put Core in there too. Core, at least that the that was a case where you know him and Curzon going off and getting drunk together was completely in character. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and and I thought and and also Core's another one I have I always like having an excuse to write. Uh, but in that in that case it was it being Core since the, his relationship with with Curzon was already well established. So and and I needed him to talk to somebody. Um, and. Uh, so yeah, that was 
No, I, I don't think... I, w- I was hoping to find a way to get the Enterprise C in there, but um, but I talked with my editor about it, and since she was getting, since there was going to be a separate Enterprise C book, um, we decided not to do that. I just had Garrett as the first officer of the Carthage early on in the book, um, have it mentioned at some point that she got command of the Enterprise, and and you know, and then the actual uh, destruction of the Enterprise at Narendra Three wasn't important, and that was me- that had to be meaningful. Part part of what I was trying to do in this as well. Um, one of the many threads I was trying to tie together was what happened in yesterday's Enterprise. Um, that episode established that the Enterprise rescuing, coming to the aid of Klingons being attacked by Romulans, was a significant enough act that if it hadn't happened, there would have been a war. So there had to have been some tensions there. And that time period was, in Star Trek VI, they said the Klingon Empire has 50 years of life left, which meant that the only reason they survived was because the Federation helped. At that point, we were about 50 years later, so there, it made sense that there would be some factions among the Klingons like, okay, the 50 years is up, we don't need them anymore. Um, and and for that and other reasons, you know, I wanted to basically set up why there would be tensions enough between the Empire and the Federation when they were nominally allies that a war could have broken out. Um, and instead, you know, the destruction of the Enterprise then turns into a major turning point that changes the minds of a lot of members of the High Council who were on Kravok's side and aren't anymore because, look, after all this, the Federation went and they sacri- one of their best ships sacrificed themselves to save Klingon lives, and we need to be better than that. Um, so I wanted I wanted to you know expand on that and explain how that came to be at a period when theoretically the Federation and the Empire were supposed to be friends. Well, it all came together beautifully. And I think um, it's a testament to how well this was written that ostensibly we kind of knew how everything was going to end and what, you know, and what the the fate of a lot of the characters was, but nothing in it felt um, predictable or like, oh, well, you know, I know what's going to happen. So it's kind of already been spoiled. It was, it was really compelling all the way through the character development was, was fantastic. So I, I I really really enjoyed this one. Um, it was actually one of the best books that I've read in a in a while. So um, I realize it's a it's an oldie, um, but it's it's definitely a giddy. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm still I have written over fifty novels at this point, and I still think this is one of my best. Yeah. Um, which which is kind of daunting because it's like I've had seventeen years and I'm really copy yet. But, uh, <laughs> 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 but I'm trying. I'm really trying. <laughs> this I, book. I have, to, I have to give credit. Uh, to my editor, Marco Palmieri, who was one of the editors at Simon & Schuster at the time. Uh, he's now working for Serial Box these days. Um, Marco is one of the best editors I've ever worked with. And and it, it's not a coincidence that two of my best novels were ones that Marco edited. Uh, and, and a couple of my, you know, a lot of my, I did a lot of really good work for Marco. And the fact, I think the fact that a lot of my, my the Star Trek work I did for Marco was in many ways uh, better. I think Marco made me a better writer. And he did that with a lot of, of authors. Um, he, he, he and I developed the story together. Um, and uh, he, it was, it was, he was great to work with. He made a lot of really good suggestions that made it better. Um, and he really pushed me to do the, the best work I could. And, and I want to give him credit for that because um, the book wouldn't have been anywhere nearly as good without, without his input and editorial guidance. From, from my point of view, the, the book was a really enjoyable read and um, it's definitely one of those books I put into my top top ten as I will, re-re- uh, I will reread it and not just once, more than once. 
Um, there's there's only about 10 books and that's knocked one out and gone into the top 10 now. Um, so it, it's really, really good. And it's one of those books that if I'm going on holiday, I'll take it with me um, because it's just, you know, I think it's one of those books, I think that I'll read it again and I either missed it or I'll get something else out of it. And I think when when you, when that happens, that means it's special and it, and it was. Thank you so much. That, that, that means a lot. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree with the sentiment there, Michael, that um, that you could probably reread it and get something different each time because yeah. there was so much packed in there, but often when there's so much packed into a book, it can feel weighty and a bit cluttered, whereas this, everything was seamless, but there's just so much story to it, which is, you know, the, the best combination. Where you, there's so much packed in, but without it becoming bloated. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I second that sentiment. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. So, so Keith, for, for our listeners, if they wanted to find out more about you or follow you, follow you on social media, uh, where, where could they find out more and, and how could they follow you? Uh, best bet is to go to decandido.net. It's my last name, D-E-C-A-N-D-I-D-O.net. Uh, right now, it's just a very clumsy link dump that looks like it was designed by somebody who learned HTML in 1996. Uh, that's because I learned HTML in 1996. But, um, uh, it is in the process of being revamped. Uh, there, there is. Uh, I'm, I'm working with uh, somebody who actually knows web design uh, to make it a better site. For now, however, it is a link dump. But from there, you can get to my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, uh, my Instagram page, my Wikipedia page. Uh, there's a link to all my articles on Tor.com. There's a link to my YouTube channel. Uh, I have been doing readings of my short fiction uh, since since the apocalypse started. Um, over the course of this year, I've done what are called Crad COVID readings, which has been uh, readings of, of various works of short fiction, including a lot of my Star Trek stuff. Um, and I'm actually starting to run out of short stories at this point. <laughs> I've been doing so many of them. But uh, you can find that, again, there's a link there from decandido.net. Um, there's links to my to my books on, on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and Kobo and, and links to my most recent books. Um, I'm very, I post on social media a lot. I have a blog also, there's a link there. Um, and I, and I post there fairly regularly. So it's real easy to, cyber stalking me is very easy. <laughs> so just, you know, look for me online and, or look on that website and there, there are links. Uh, you can find me. I'm, I'm very approachable. And um, what's, what's coming up for you? Uh, have you got anything that uh, our listeners should be looking out for? Uh, I mentioned a couple of them earlier, the To Helenry Group, which I wrote with David Sherman. It's actually the third book in David's uh, The 18th Race Trilogy, which is a military science fiction trilogy. I actually edited the first two books, and for various reasons, David was unable to finish the book himself, and he asked me to collaborate with him on the final book, uh, and we wrote it together. Um, that is out from Eastbeck Books. Uh, the official pub date is November 1st, and it's, and it's so you should be able to get that by the time this goes live. Um, in January of 2021, I've got a thriller that I wrote with Dr. Manish K. Batra called Animal. It's about a serial killer who targets people who harm animals. Um, oh. It's kind of like Dexter if PETA had created it. And, <laughs> and uh, that's out in January from Wordfire Press. Sometime in 2021, I will have both uh, the next Precinct book, Phoenix Precinct, and the next Brom Gold book, Feet of Clay. Meanwhile, you can get the other books in that series. Uh, the Precinct series is as uh, five novels and one short story collection, starting with Dragon Precinct. Those are all available from eSpec Books. It, it mixes high fantasy with police procedure, so it's kind of Law and Order meets Lord of the Rings. Uh, one reviewer called it Dungeons and Dragnet. 
and then the the Bram Gold books are uh, uh, based on um, urban fantasies set in the contemporary New York City. Um, I've got a lot of short stories out. Uh, most recently, uh, I've had short stories in the anthologies, uh, Pangea Book Three, Redemption, edited by Michael Jan Friedman, uh, Badass Moms, edited by Mary Fan, uh, Thrilling Adventure Yarns, edited by Robert Greenberger, uh, Footprints in the Stars, edited by uh, Danielle Ackley McPhail, um, and uh, one of the Brave New Girls anthologies, but edited by Mary Fan and Paige Daniels, uh, and some others I'm forgetting, but there's <laughs> um, and I'm still right, and, uh, and you can find me three, at least three times a week on Tor.com. Uh, the Star Trek Voyager rewatch is currently in the fourth season, um, and that's every Monday and Thursday on Tor.com. And then uh, the day of each new episode of whatever show is on CBS All Access at the time, uh, I have my review out. And there are reviews up of every episode of Discovery. Of every Okay. Book fell down. Uh, book, sorry, a book fell off my bookcase for no good reason. Um, gravity is a thing that happens. Sorry. Um, uh, every episode of Discovery as it's released, and also all the previous episodes of Discovery, as well as Short Treks, Picard, and uh, Lower Decks have all been reviewed there. Um, plus my superhero movie rewatch and other cool stuff. There's lots of, lots of pop culture commentary. Um, so check that out. And probably some other things I'm forgetting too. But... <laughs> That's probably enough to get on with for the moment. <laughs> oh, and, and I want to mention again, the Star Trek Adventures, the Klingon Empire core rulebook from Modifius Games. Uh, I wrote a lot of that, including a, a number of the bits of Klingon history uh, that are in there. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really appreciate your time. Absolutely my pleasure. Like I said, The Art of the Impossible is one of the books I'm proudest of, and you guys just reminded me why I'm proud of it. So <laughs> um, and I'm always happy to talk about it. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. And, and we'll definitely get you on uh, much sooner than we, than we did last time, because it has been a while. So, But thank you for so much for joining us. My pleasure. Well, it was fantastic to have Keith back on the show again. I really enjoyed this book. And so it was great to hear about all the behind the scenes of how he went about writing it and what was involved in putting the story together. But mainly, I just can't believe that this came about from like two lines in a random uh, Deep Space Nine episode. I think that's amazing how the authors can do that. <laughs> Oh, it is. It's absolutely brilliant. And um, I'm I'm listening to some Sherlock Holmes stories on um, Audible at the moment. And they're BBC Radio 4 dramas back from the early 2000s. And um, it's exactly the same concept. It's like one phrase in an original Conan Doyle story. And they've made a whole play out of it, a 45-minute play, just from one phrase that Holmes or Watson might have mentioned about another case and they've done it and that's what Keith's done here and it's just incredible the the whole concept just to take it from that one phrase is, is amazing and it's great writing and I think what's also brilliant is that um we're, we're you know we're really being spoiled at the moment with all these wonderful new Star Trek books whether it's Discovery whether it's Picard um I'm sure we're going to get lower deck comics to be honest but there's so many vintage books out there from from long ago so to speak which are just absolutely brilliant and if you're new to star trek and new to the books you should really go out and, and explore some of these wonderful stories yeah absolutely and it's great that um even with all the the new content that's being released we can still be you know giving our listeners the opportunity to maybe go back and discover something that they missed or something that even we missed i mean i i thought that we had read one of the lost era 
series books but when I went back and looked at it I realized that the first one that we reviewed together which was The Buried Age it's an it's a novel from the Lost Era but it's not part of the Lost Era series um, which I hadn't realized the distinction so now I obviously want to go back and read the whole rest of the Lost Era series because <laughs> it, it's just um, it, it's just so great to have those stories that pad out the gaps uh, that's always been the the wonderful thing about the books that ran concur like that where the storylines run concurrent with something that's on screen is that you pad out the universe and um, obviously there's also benefit that's the ones that ran um post tv because yeah. they've got a bit more scope because they don't have to tie in with the with the ongoing story but the ones that were set in between or that run alongside the story, they just do so much to pad out the character development and the story and the plot and the whole Star Trek universe. Um, and it just it just makes it such a rich tapestry. So yeah, this was a real, real good read. Um, and Keith is uh, is such a good author, but this was really a, a very good one. <laughs> and he's great fun to chat to. So we'll definitely have to get him on again. Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing after being away for so long, it, it's almost like talking to people again for the first time. So it's lovely yeah. to have the authors coming, taking the time to come back on the show and um, catch up with us about some of their work. No, definitely. And um, again, for the listeners, of, um, no spoilers from us, but we, we, we've got some uh, treats coming along, some more authors coming to join us soon and um, to discuss some more wonderful Star Trek stories. So um, you're going to be spoiled and we're going to get spoiled talking to them again. <laughs> yep. So keep, it, keep an eye out for a podcast coming up later this year. So as always, thanks for joining us and don't forget to turn the page for our next adventure.